And Father, we come to you, and we are so grateful that indeed you are stronger. You are the Almighty One who reached into time and space and provided salvation through your Son. Lord, guide us as we go to the text today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of Luke who records these events so that we might believe that indeed your son is the Messiah. In his name we pray, amen. If you would, turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Several of you are at a point where you're looking at college. Of course, nowadays, these universities, they start sending literature to you when you are four. But uh, if you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But uh, for those of us that's been a few years, you remember visiting the college campus, don't you? You would get all your ducks in a row, and you knew you were going to have an interview with the admissions counselor. Perhaps you'd meet a professor sit in a class, check out the dorms. You know, you, you narrowed it down to, at least for me, it was, I narrowed it down to two colleges, universities, and we were going to go check out both of them, and then it was the time to make a decision. Luke's gospel in chapter 4, we've, we've already noted, he's saying this is Jesus the Messiah. This is the one that we have longed to see. And, and, and it calls then in chapter 5 through 6, the idea is it's, an, it's now the time to decide what you're going to do with this Jesus. We've recognized who he is. Now what are you going to do with him? It's in this section that you'll find the word disciple that occurs the first time in the narrative. It's also the first time that you meet a term and it's for a group called the Pharisees. And the lines are starting to be drawn Christologically with this Jesus. There's going to be a group who will respond in faith, a term that occurs for the first time here in Luke's gospel in this section 5, 1 through 6, 16. And then you have another group over here who are going to reject Jesus. And in fact, in 6, 11, the text tells us that the religious rulers now got to figure out what to do with Jesus. And that doesn't mean host a party. <laughs> They, they need to eliminate him. He is a threat to their power base. The religious rulers' authority, at least the Pharisees in particular, their authority came from the popular vote. To lose that, they're in deep trouble. Another religious group in the first century called the Sadducees, their power came from their alliance with Rome. But for the Pharisees, the people love them. I know we don't often think that when we read through the Gospels. When you see the term Pharisees, you often want to go boo, hiss. But in the first century, they were loved. They were part of the people. They were considered the devout ones who cared for us. And Jesus is going to turn all that upside down as we come to the narrative, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to look at the calling of Peter today and one of the miracles that illustrates this divide that is going to occur. Next week, we're going to look at the calling of Matthew in this section and another miracle that occurs and further accentuate the divide. But in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing around him to hear the word of God. He saw two boats by the lake, and this is Lake Gennesaret is also the Sea of Galilee, as you often have heard it referred to. 
and the sea is 13 miles by 8 miles, about 150 feet deep. It is the lowest freshwater lake in the world, and it's Israel's largest freshwater lake even today. And so it says, Jesus saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Dun, da, da, da. Here comes Simon Peter, right? And asked him to put out a little away from the shore. Then Jesus sat down and taught the disciples, or excuse me, the crowd from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and lower your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master. And that phrase, by the way, is used just by the disciples. They will never refer to him as teacher in the Gospel of Luke. He's something far more significant for them. We've worked hard all night and have caught nothing. <laughs> but, all right, I'll lower the net. You get the idea, right? The nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets started to tear. So they motioned to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they were about to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For Peter and all who were with them were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, don't miss this, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's business partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. So when they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Here we have this incredible calling, not just of Peter, but James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Of course, the focus is on Peter in this scene that we find here in Luke's gospel. The, 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 the scene is set. We've been in Capernaum, right there on the shore, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. We have these fishermen Josephus, the Jewish historian, told us there's about 250 boats uh, in the first century on the Sea of Galilee. Now with tourism, I think there's 5,000, but we won't go there, right, uh, today. But 250 at that time, 16 harbors. Capernaum was a significant harbor, and it shouldn't surprise us that we would see fishermen part of the major industry in this region at that time. Notice the text states, they are washing their nets, which tells us a little bit about their fishing. It's not a rod and reel. Remember the song you used to sing when you were in Sunday school? I will make you fishers of men. And you'd throw your rod and you reel it to, you know, remember that? I got some blank stares. All right, well, maybe I should teach you. Um, no. That's not the type of fishing in the first century. It was done by, this is probably a trammel net. So you would have several who would throw it out. It would go and kind of catch the fish and draw them in. It was three layers. So they would get caught within the net. They would then bring it into the boat. If it was a large catch, they'd bring it into the boat. And then you would pull the fish out between the, 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 in the in within the net that, that were caught. And that was their catch. Every miracle that, or the, yeah, that Jesus performs on the Sea of Galilee is with his disciples in the Gospels. Every one of them. This is not a coincidence that we've gone to the Sea of Galilee and he's going to take Simon, who's a seasoned fisherman. I mean, this guy's a businessman. Did you see that? 
He's got associates. He's got James and John that are working together. And, and we know from first century recordings and records and so forth that the fishing industry went all the way down to Jerusalem. In fact, some of the fish were even ported outside of Palestine in the first century. Very significant industry. And, and here is, I mean, you look at Simon's response. I mean, think about this. Jesus is not a fisherman. He's a carpenter, right? He, he has no experience in the trade. Secondly, Simon tells us they have worked hard. Don't rub it in, Jesus. <laughs> We've been working all night, and we didn't catch anything. And now you want us to do this? We're exhausted. You know, never start a plumbing job when you're tired. In fact, for that matter, never start a plumbing job. But anyway, <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Jesus had a lack of experience. They, they, they're exhausted from fishing. Third, fishing on the Sea of Galilee was not done during the day. It was done at night. Notice it says they've, they've, we have fished all night. And, and, and now you want us to go out in broad daylight and catch? That's not going to happen. Furthermore, where did Jesus tell them? Put out into the deep. You know, fish at the deep. Jesus. Uh, travel nets only go down so far. Uh, you do this closer to the shoreline. So all of these things, you know, P Peter's got to be going, huh? Lord, I love you. You healed my mother-in-law. I saw you do that thing at the synagogue with the demoniac, and I know you, you, you can do some great things, but <laughs> really? Okay. We'll do what you need to do. And a trammel net normally would take in about 100 to 200 pounds. That would be a, a, a sizable catch. This has to be at least half a ton because the boats were about 25 feet long. They accommodated up to 15 men. Now, when I say that, I'm using first century standards. They were about five foot five and weighed about 150 pounds, right? That, that's a whole different <laughs> than today. But nonetheless, to be able to start sinking that ship, we've got a huge amount of fish. An experienced fisherman on the Sea of Galilee wrote a book uh, Noon is his name. He stated that he had heard stories that on occasion fishermen would bring in half a ton of fish with trommel nets. But this is very significant, isn't it? Because you have an experienced fisherman who says, listen, I've already fished these waters. There's nothing out there. And now you want to do it during the day and you're telling me to go into the deep. The trommel nets don't go that far. Whatever, we'll do it. And so, as you see in the text, as we, we've noted in verse 8, Simon Peter saw it and he fell down. Notice his fourfold response. First of all, he falls to his knees. It's a sign of humility before his superior. Who am I? Secondly, he asked Jesus, let's start business together. You know, no, what does he say? Go away from me. I am unworthy. I think of Isaiah 6. What does Isaiah do when he sees the Lord high and lifted and exalted? Uh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Depart from me. Peter refers to Jesus. Notice what he calls him. Go away from me, Lord. He's more than just master. It's a title used of God's authority we saw that earlier in chapter 1 of Luke. So he refers to him as Lord, and then finally he recognizes, I am a sinful man. Who am I to stand before you? What caused P 
Peter's response. The text tells us, according to Luke, it was the magnitude of the catch. Look what it says. For Peter, verse 9, and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Oh, he had seen the exorcism at the synagogue, and Peter had watched the restoration of his mother-in-law, and you could perhaps explain those away. But fishing was Peter's livelihood. It's not a side job. He is in business. He knows this industry well, and there's only one explanation for what has just occurred. And that has to be Jesus is something far more than just any mortal. <laughs> He's also God. I love the father or the son's response, Jesus' response. Know what he says to Simon? He says, Do not be afraid. We've already seen this earlier in Luke's gospel when the angel said, Gabriel said, do not be afraid. Right? We sell that to the shepherds. Don't be afraid. Why did Peter fear? I mean, this is good for business. Was it fear of judgment? Fear of rejection? Because he recognizes who Jesus really is and he recognizes who he is. A fear of abandonment? For the Lord, it's not rejection. It's not abandonment. No, for the Lord, it's grace and mercy, isn't it? Because he says to Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you are going to be in my employment. <laughs> I got something far greater than this fishing industry. This is nothing. I, I'm calling you to be fishers of men. The phrase is interesting. It may refer to Ezekiel 47 that talks about in the end times, God is going to bless and, and people will be fishing even in near the Dead Sea. There could be this idea that's being brought out here. Regardless, the Lord is calling him. And in fact, that from now on, you will be catching people. That phrase from now on tells us that there is a fundamental change that's occurring with Peter. And thinking through Jesus calling Peter to be fishers of men, and that phrase is used elsewhere of Christ's followers. Reflecting on first century fishing, this is not an easy industry, is it? The Galilean practice that we see in the first century was labor intensive, often yielding little results. Persistence, diligence, and patience were crucial. And I would argue we must not miss the implications for personal evangelism. Hard work, long hours, and, and an active involvement are essential. Vital even when there's minimal results. Jesus said, I've called you Peter, James and John, to be fishers of men, not of fish. And so here you have this opening Address this opening salvo of the this section 5 1 through 6 16, and we have the calling of Peter. It's glorious. And then you skip over to a scene in verse 17. It says, Now on those days, while he was teaching, there were Pharisees. The text tells us it's again the first mention of this group in the text. And normally when we hear that term in the when we read the gospels, we go, boo is. But the Pharisees were the, the devout ones. Jesus' rhetoric resembled more the Pharisees than any other Jewish sect in the first century. 
The Pharisees held to the entire Old Testament. They believed in the supernatural. They were devout. The Sadducees, which is another group, they didn't hold but to the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the, the, the supernatural. And, and, and so you had always this conflict going on in Judaism in the first century. But these Pharisees and teachers of the law, the hoi polloi, the frozen chosen, right, are sitting nearby who had come, watch this parenthetical statement, They've come from every village of Galilee, Judea, and from Jerusalem. That's 110 miles away. You've got these religious rulers, they're, they're hearing. And remember, this is creating a bit of a consternation because their power base is from how people love them. And Jesus is starting to get, gather folk and he does not fit. He did not go through our schools. You can hear the, the Pharisees, can't you? He does not have our credentials. We have not uh, given him authority to do this. And so they make the trek up to Capernaum to see who is this Jesus. Teachers of the law sitting. And the power of the Lord, power has been equated with the Holy Spirit in Luke's gospel already, was with him to heal. Just then some men showed up, and I love this scene, carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher. They were trying to bring him in and place him before Jesus, but they could find no way to carry him in. Why? Because the religious rulers are blocking Jesus' ministry. Don't you love it? I mean, they, can't, they can't get through this door. Palestinian homes in the first century were small. They were two stories. There was a stairwell on the outside that allowed you to go up to the roof. And that's what these four guys figure out what to do. It says that they went up. Mark tells us it's four, by the way. They found a way to carry him in, so they went to the roof, let him down on a stretcher through the roof tiles right in front of Jesus. Can you imagine? You're sitting in this room listening to Jesus, and, and all of a sudden, debris falling down on you. And Jesus saw their faith. It's the first time that term occurs. And he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, of all the things to say to this guy... I mean, the obvious is what? <laughs> He's a paralytic. Can we deal with that, Jesus? No, he deals with the sin. And the experts of the law and the Pharisees begin to think to themselves. They've not verbalized it. It's only internal. Who is this man who is uttering blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They are correct. That is, only God can forgive sins. When Jesus perceived their hostile thoughts, he said to them, why are you raising objections with yourselves? What is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, stand up, take your stretcher and go home. Immediately he stood up before them, picked up the stretcher he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Then astonishment seized them all. Reminds you of the fish, doesn't it? And they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, we have seen incredible things today. Again, the line of the sand is being drawn. 
the crowd is responding. Disciples are responding. And you would think the religious rulers are responding, but again, in 611, notice what it says in 611, which kind of rounds out this scene in the narrative. It says, but they were filled with mindless rage, that is the religious rulers, and began debating with one another what they would do to Jesus. So it's starting to divide here. And and this scene here is another example of Jesus displaying who I am and the call to respond. As we stated, Jesus' ministry has attracted religious rulers from all over Judea, all the way down to Jerusalem to see what is being done here. Jesus' response that first there needs to be sin forgiven would seem to indicate that sin is part of the man's problem and perhaps with his health. We need to be careful, however. In John chapter 9, there's a man born blind, and you remember that scene. The question is, who sinned? That's what the disciples were asking, and they're only echoing what was taught in Judaism in the first century. Who sinned? This guy or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. The man's been born blind so that I could be glorified, that God could be glorified through me. And, and, and so we have to be careful that illness is not just equated with sin. In this case, there seems to be, though, a connection that's being drawn and the call for faith, which is seen in verse 20. Faith throughout the Gospel of Luke is attributed to those who act decisively on the basis of the conviction that God's help is to be found with Jesus and gratefully receive Jesus, or God's actions through him. What do we mean? What, what is faith in the New Testament? We talk about faith. You know, we sing about faith. Um, faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith. It, it, it's it's a, that which flows from God's gracious hand to us. It's his gift. Secondly, faith is, is born out of need. If, if he wasn't a sinner, he wouldn't need the faith to respond. If we weren't sinners, we wouldn't need faith, but we do. And third thing about faith throughout the New Testament, the object is always Jesus, isn't it? And, and that's what we see here. Sadly, the religious rulers were far more concerned with scrutinizing Jesus than saving the paralytic. Legalism serves as a very cruel tool in the hands of a taskmaster. Similar to the man's medical conditions, legalism, I would argue, cripples, leaving a person defeated, isolated, and useless. It's not the presence of rules that makes one legalistic. Otherwise, McDonald's is legalistic. They have a dress code, I think, for working at McDonald's. No, it's the attitude which surrounds the rules and regulations, right? You're fearful that somewhere someone might be saying something they shouldn't say, idea, and, and imposing those rules to determine one's spirituality. And, and the religious rulers, they know the law well, they know it inside and out, but it's carried over into a legalistic approach, and they've missed who Jesus is in the process. Oh, they understood that to forgiveness of sins, verse 21 is relegated to what God can do, but they've missed the point that Jesus is also God. 
Theologians understand Jesus' claim to perform God's role as to forgive sins as blasphemous. One commentator, commentator states it involves an overt defilement of the divine name. That is an abusive speech or action directed against God. And according to the Old Testament, blasphemers were what? According to Leviticus, they were stoned. So what is the religious ruler stating? Let's take him out and stone him is really, in essence, what they're saying. This is horrible. Their charge of blasphemy stems from Jesus' claim that what Jesus is doing, that is forgiving sins, is only something God can do. They've missed that Jesus is God. Isaiah 43, I am he, God states, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. And Psalm 130 with you, O oh God, there is forgiveness that you may be worshipped. What is Jesus stating? <laughs> I am God. The scene that is going to occur later in chapter 6, we're going to see is with the Sabbath. And Jesus once again saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am God. And this line is being drawn and saying, Peter understood it. Sadly, the man with the four friends understood it, but the religious rulers who should have seen it missed it. Jesus states then to these religious rulers, he says, what is easier to do? Your sins are forgiven or to stand up and walk? And I, and I love it. He says, well, let me do both for you. But so that you may know that the son of man, verse 24, it's the title Jesus uses most frequently of himself. 80-some times in the Gospels, he'll refer to himself as the Son of Man. Why? The reference is found in Daniel 7. If you're, writing, you're taking notes, you'll want to write that down. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 states, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. And his kingdoms, and the kingdom one shall not be destroyed. When Jesus appears in those hearings the night that he was betrayed, they ask him, are you, are you the Christ? He quotes he sees the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Remember the religious ruler, the high priest? He rips his garment, which is foreboding. What is he saying? Yeah, I'm the Christ. And in fact, I'm the one who's going to come judge you. You sit here thinking you're judging me. Let me quote to you to Daniel. I am the Son of Man, Jesus states. I am the one who has been sent. I am the one who will reign. I am the one who will judge and you sit here, you religious rulers, and accuse me of blasphemy. You've missed it. I am God. I am the one sitting here, standing in your midst. Thankfully, there are those who caught it. Because in verse 25 and in verse 26, the line is repeated, glorifying God. The paralytic who has been restored does it. And we see the crowd, many within the crowd, doing it. The line in the sand has been drawn. And I, uh, what do you do with Jesus today? <laughs> is he only convenient when he fits your model, like the religious rulers, and you keep him in certain boxes? Or is there an understanding, 
woe is me. <laughs> you are the great God. I am a sinner. Peter understood it. Th these four understood it. And Jesus declares it. And the religious, under, the religious rulers understood what Jesus was claiming. They just would not accept it. That's why they wanted to kill him. There's a couple principles, I think, as we look at these, this text today, some things to glean. And first of all, I wrote in your notes, we need to remember our dependence on the Lord. The greatest danger in approaching an all-powerful God is clinging to self. What do I mean by that? Well, similar to the religious rulers, it's so easy to bask in self-righteousness, self-reliance, self-deception, and self-interest. <laughs> to follow Christ means to deny self. It's Christ-righteousness, Christ-reliance, Christ-perception, Christ-interest status that we need to seek, isn't it? To remember our dependence on the Lord, giving you a couple sub-points, is first of all, we deserve nothing but judgment. This is why Peter really when he fully grasped who Jesus was, he said, go away from me. <laughs> I am not worthy to even be in your presence. It's ironic because earlier he begged Jesus to come to his home to, to heal his mother-in-law. And now he says, just go away. We deserve nothing but judgment. We are in need of forgiveness. I love this quote. It said, if our greatest need had been information... And God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a savior. <laughs> Isn't that great? We are in need of forgiveness, and it's easy to lose sight of that in our self-dependence, self-reliance. Who are we before a holy God? Perhaps we all need a, a trip on a boat on the Sea of Galilee <laughs> with a bunch of fish to be reminded. Third, we bring nothing to assist our restoration. What did the paralytic bring? Nothing. In fact, he had others had to bring him. <laughs> he had nothing. He was helpless. Confined to that stretcher. Romans 5 states, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by the blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God through the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's our God. That's what he's done for us. We deserve nothing but judgment. We needed forgiveness. There was nothing we could bring for our restoration. And fourth, our very existence stems from his merciful hand. I love Thomas Watson, the Puritan. He says, states, every time you breathe, you inhale mercy. <laughs> Isn't that great? 
I love reading the Petrine epistles. And what I mean by that is First and Second Peter. They're written by the same guy that we just saw in Luke chapter 5. And Peter struggles with type A. He struggles with foot and mouth disease. Uh, he, he, and there's a few times he blows it. Perhaps that's why First Peter is called the epistle of grace. He writes in chapter 2, verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's understood what it means to be dependent on the Lord. Let me give you a, a challenge this week. It's rather silly, but I think it is effective. Pull out a sticky note and write, dependent on the Lord. And then place that sticky note where you need to see it most. Perhaps it's on the front of your checkbook. Dependent on the Lord. Perhaps it's on the computer screen. Dependent on the Lord. Perhaps it's on the, the thermos that you grab as you go off to work. Dependent on the Lord. Perhaps it's that textbook that you got to take to class. You kids, dependent on the Lord. We need to be reminded we are dependent on him. Who are we before an almighty God, right? Well, there's a, a second point, I think, as we look at this, these two beautiful scenes in Luke chapter five. Not only are we dependent on the Lord, but secondly, we must not lose the awe of God's saving grace. Think about the restored man on the stretcher. He did not debate whether it was wise or not to disobey the doctor's orders and rise up out of the stretcher. Well, Jesus, I, I love you telling me to get up, but, you know, I got to be very careful how I move the paralysis, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the doctor told me this. He, he didn't refuse to stand because, well, actually he enjoyed being the center of attention and everyone meeting his needs as he laid on that stretcher. He didn't ask the Lord to compensate him for all the years he had laid on the stretcher. He didn't complain, you know, Jesus, it has taken you a very long time to deal with this. I, I've prayed numerous times. Nothing has happened. He didn't walk away and forget what the Lord had done. Rather, he takes up the stretcher. And you wonder why the Lord tells him to do it. I think it's so it's a great object lesson. Look at this. <laughs> Look what Jesus did. Right? To take up his stretcher, he walks away. I have a feeling he also probably skipped. And he glorifies God. <laughs> we, not, we must not lose the awe of God and all that he has done for us. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, number one, our heart should overflow with gratitude. First Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And then he says, so that we might be tested genuineness of our faith and we may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Through you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy, with an expressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Reflect on your conversations this past week. Have you spent more time complaining and worrying about the political scene than you've spent glorifying God for the grace he's extended to you? Ouch. That's a little convicting. We'll move on. 
but it's true. Our heart should overflow with gratitude. As believers, we should be some of the most grateful people walking this globe. We've told our kids, you're going to write a thank you note right away. You just do it. That's, that's, it's express gratitude for what people have done, but it's an extension of what is modeling what Christ has done for us. And our hearts should overflow with great gratitude to the Lord. Secondly, how do we not lose the awe of God? Our lives should be marked with obedience. What did Jesus tell Peter? Keep up the fishing industry? You're doing great. Tuna the fish has no comparison with what you're doing. This is, this is fantastic. No. He said, you're going to be fishers of men. What did he tell the paralytic? Get up and go. Testify. You know, in John chapter 21, it's one of my favorite scenes. In John 21, you have the, the resurrected Jesus appearing to Peter. Remember where Peter is in John 21. He's gone back to fishing on the Sea of Galilee. You ask, why? Well, the text tells us it's at night, which in John, night is always the realm of disbelief. I think Peter, after having denied Jesus three times, thinks he's through. I've blown it. I'm done. So he goes back to what he knows. Prior to catching men, it was catching fish. And Jesus appears to them, and I love it. He says to Peter, do you love me more than these? And most scholars will say, well, he's referring to the disciples, but nowhere in Scripture are we asked to compare our devotion to Christ to others. It's in the neuter as well in the Greek. No, I, he's saying, do you love me more than these fish? Do, do you love me more than what I've called you from? Why would you go back to this? I've called you. You're mine, and you need to be serving me. This is what I have done in your life. The same could be said of us, couldn't it? The albatrosses of life, perhaps guilt, perhaps it's, well, Hophidus, if you knew my past. Perhaps it's just, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm not as young as I used to be, and, and, or I'm not old enough to do these things. There were no qualifiers given when Jesus said to Peter, I will make you fishers of men. And I would argue for all those who seek to be Christ followers who respond, how do we show our awe of God's saving grace in our life? We pick up the trowel net and start fishing. <laughs> it's a group effort, by the way. As we seek to glorify him, as we seek to be faithful in serving him. Take heed at the religious rulers. Oh, they knew a lot of stuff. Their theology, I mean, it was, they were seminary trained. They'd gone to cemetery, as they say. They knew all of it. They knew the ins and the outs. They could parse the Greek and work through the Hebrew. But when it came to who Jesus was, they missed it. May we not be found in that same camp. This morning, I suspect most of you know Jesus as your Savior, but perhaps you've just kind of gone with the shuffle. You know, it was convenient. It's what everyone was doing. 
even your spouse may not realize, no, there's never been a point where you have bent your knee before a holy God and said, I need forgiveness. Today's the day. Do not wait. Perhaps you've been, like Peter, tempted to go back to catching fish. The tilapia looks kind of nice. They're easier than people. <laughs> it's convenient. It's what you knew. Jesus said, no, 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 no. I've called you to be fishers of men and women. <laughs> I've called you to get out there, and I've called you to glorify me. We need to be reminded this morning we are dependent on him. And secondly, we cannot lose the awe of God's saving grace. Even in the midst of a pandemic, we, God's people, should be going, yeah, we serve a great God. It flows from gratitude and it flows out of a heart of obedience. Why? Because Jesus loved us so. Father, what a powerful scene, two scenes nestled here in Luke chapter 5. The calling of Peter, where your son just happens to call up a few fish. <laughs> Peter's shocked at that. Well, he ain't seen nothing yet. Let's then we see the paralytic as well. And once again, your son shows, displays that he indeed is God. The forgiving of sins, the healing of the paralytic, and a declaration that he is the son of man. Father, this morning, for those that are in, sitting here in these seats and for those that are watching online, the question that we must ask all of ourselves is, what do we do with this Jesus? Similar to visiting the college campus, we've checked out the dorms, we've sat in the classes. Now it's time to make a decision. What are we going to do? Oh, you could walk across campus and you can eat in the cafeteria, but if you're not paying tuition, you're not enrolled. <laughs> you can know a lot about Jesus, but if you've not accepted him as your savior, you're not part of the family. For those of us who do know Jesus, the question is, what are we going to do? Do we rest in what God has done and forget to express our gratitude? Forget that we need to be busy serving? Lord, may we be found faithful. Faithful fishermen. Faithful doing your work here on this earth. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name.